0: Well, have you ever sweat a lot? I'm sweating right now a little bit. (laughs) Uh, Have you ever just sweat like a ton. Now I'm not talking about you guys that like glow with a little perspiration, right? I'm talking about ugly sweating, right? (laughs) Where it looks like you've jumped into a pool with all of your clothes on, right? I I go into a sauna most days at my gym. And when I come out, it's an ugly sweat, right? I'm I'm covered in sweat head to toe. A year ago, I was golfing in Tulsa with my brother. And uh, they had a record number of 100 degree plus days in a row in Tulsa at the same time having like a 100% humid. I don't even know if that's possible, but it was insane how hot and humid it was. And we were playing golf. My boys were with me. We're playing with my brother. By hole 14, I'd had enough. I think I was having heat stroke or something, right? I'm seeing stars. I'm getting dizzy. I'm like, I've had enough. My brother's making fun of me. My boys are making fun of me, but I was done. I'd had enough, right? I I couldn't handle it. I was sweating so much. I think I was getting dehydrated. And so I was done. I quit on hole 14. Now I shot a 70 and had my best round ever. Let it sink in. Maybe you'll get it. (laughs) But Jesus, we're going to see today sweat too. In fact, we're going to see in this scene, in this passage, That he sweats so much, not because of the weather, but because of an overwhelming anxiety, because of an overwhelming grief, that he is sweating so much, the gospel writers would say. It was like drops of blood coming off of him and falling to the ground, right? He is sweating profusely. Today. And so, if you got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 22, and we're going to see Jesus in a moment of anxiety and grief that leads to him being overwhelmed with this sweat and anxiety and, and, and grief. And so, Luke chapter 22, we're, we're finishing up over the next month a series of going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the gospel of Luke. And we've challenged you in our study of Luke to engage, like to study with us, to not sit back and watch me talk as if this is theater, right? I'm not a very good entertainer, okay? But if you would lean in and engage and read the scripture, you will actually hear God speak to you. I mean, how incredible is that? Not because I'm anything special, his word is just that good, it's just that powerful. If you will lean in and engage, And so we've been challenging you to study the Gospel of Luke with us. In our small groups, in our daily devotionals, Monday through Friday, you can go to the Bible study tab on our app and and, and go through the Gospel of Luke with us as we cover these same verses and give you some more commentary and prayer points and application. We challenge you to study the Gospel of Luke as a family using the Table Talk resource on our app. That's another Bible study resource where you can get around a lunch table or a dinner table even today and talk about what you and your kids learned through the Gospel of Luke today because your kids right now in their kids' classes in our youth ministry are studying these exact same passages. And so with the Table Talk and our app, you can discuss. It gives you some questions and prayer points together as a family. So we've been challenging you. Lean in, engage, and study with us. And so I want to challenge you to do that right now. Get out our app. It's called the City Church Lubbock. You can download it in your app store. Click message notes, and all the verses and the points that we're talking about today will be there. For you. Now, I want to remind you of why we preach through the scripture verse by verse here at the city church. First of all, We're we're trying to get us away from and repent from this shallow, weak theology that we find in social media memes like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We're, We're even trying to like wean us off of devotional level theology that makes your Christian life like all about you instead of all about the glory of Jesus. And so we're studying the gospel of Luke right here, verse by verse, so that we will be more effective, we believe at producing disciples of Jesus, right? We, we wanna be more effective at producing a remnant people of God that will follow the Lord in his word, regardless of what this culture is doing and regardless of what other people are saying. If we are going to be a remnant that remain faithful to God, when so many are becoming unfaithful to the Lord, if we're gonna be faithful, then we've got to know the scripture. We've got to have a deep and rock solid faith that can only come from studying the scripture verse by verse. Now, as I said before, We are concluding this month our two year journey through the Gospel of Luke. By the end of August, we will have completed the Gospel of Luke. And so this month is going to be both hard and amazing all at the same time. It's going to be very difficult for us to engage with and experience as we read what happens to Jesus. But then we're going to see at the exact same time, the glory of the gospel of the cross and of the resurrection. And so this next month is going to be powerful. I invite you to join us each week. Now, if you've been here, you know we've been in Passion Week, Holy Week. Now, not like literally like today in our calendar, but in Jesus' day, in Luke chapter 22, we find ourselves in Passion Week, Holy Week. And so we looked at weeks ago, right, Palm Sunday, or we said probably more appropriately, Donkey Sunday, right? And if you're here, you know what I'm talking about. We don't have time to go back and dive into that. But then Monday... We see Jesus flipping the tables at the temple. On Tuesday, we see him exerting his authority and defending his authority. He talks about his return as king of kings and lord of lords. On Wednesday, we we saw that Judas agrees to betray Jesus. And then Thursday, part one, which was last week, we saw the Last Supper and Peter's denial predicted. Today, we're going to finish up Holy Thursday, which are the last moments that Jesus will have on this earth before the cross. And so we're going to find Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, overwhelmed with grief and anxiety, and we're going to see him arrested. So if you got your Bible, Luke chapter 22, we're going to be in verse 39. Would you stand in honor of the word of the Lord this morning? And I want to remind you as you do, that Jesus promised his disciples that we would always have his words. In fact, Jesus said, my words will never pass away. And so Because we don't think Jesus is a liar, we think he's telling the truth. What we have today in the Bible is the word of God. Jesus said, my words will never pass away. And so we trust that what we're reading today is the word of God. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 39. Then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently. And he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like drops of blood. At last, he stood up again and returned to the disciples only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. You can have a seat. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane praying. Gethsemane literally means to be pressed or to be crushed. And this pressing, this crushing that is the picture of Gethsemane is what is about to happen to Jesus. This is a foreshadow of the crushing that Jesus is about to endure. This crushing that Jesus is about to endure, he calls a cup. And so he says, Father, take this cup from me. This goes back to verses like Psalm 75, where it says the cup will come to the evil man. It's the cup of God's judgment. It's the cup of God's wrath. And so Jesus says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup of judgment, of wrath away from me. If you are willing, this, this wine that would have been in this cup would have come from grapes that are crushed and stomped on. And that's exactly what's about to happen to Jesus. He's about to be crushed. He's about to be stomped on by the wrath of God. And the red wine that was in that cup would give the imagery of the blood that is going to be shed for you and I on the cross. Of Christ. And so while we enjoy sin, I mean, even the Bible says, let's be honest, right? The pleasures of sin last for a moment. While we enjoy sin, while we may laugh at sin, while we are entertained by sin, the things that we watch, the things that we listen to, it makes Jesus sick. The Holy One of God abhors sin so much, and he's about to become it, the Bible says, that he will become sin for you and me. And he abhors it so much that he is overcome with grief and anxiety. Make no mistake, not just because of the pain of the cross, But because of the wrath of God that he's about to endure for your sin and my sin. He's overcome with grief and anxiety that he's about to take on and become the very thing that he abhors. And so he is sick with grief and anxiety, and it's causing him to sweat so much. It's falling off of him like drops of blood. And so Jesus says, Father, take it away. If you can, if you can, take it away. Have you ever been there before? Father, take it away. Take it away or take it back. Jesus is so overcome with grief and anxiety. Father, if you can, take, take it away. But what we're going to find is that even Jesus must endure the cup, the cup of trial, the cup of suffering. Even Jesus endures the cup. He didn't go around the cup. The cup isn't taken away from him. He endures. He goes through the cup. He doesn't go around the cross. He goes through the cross. And so Jesus says, take it, Father, if you can. But Not my will, but yours be done. It's the same language that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego used when they were forced to either bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had or go into the fiery furnace. And you remember what they said? We believe that our God will deliver us from the furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will never bow down and worship some idol. And that's what Jesus is saying right here. Father, you can take it, but if you don't, I'm gonna I'm, I'm, I'm endure what you've got for me, even if you don't. Jesus would rather be obedient and faithful to the will of God than be comfortable and disobedient. And so Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. And he turns to his disciples, they're asleep. And Jesus says, listen, temptation's coming. Your loyalty is about to be put on the line. You need to pray for the strength to go through your cup because you're going to endure a cup too. Yes, I've got a cup to bear. But you have a cup, you have a a trial, you have a a suffering, you have a temptation that lies ahead for you. And so he says, you got to get up and pray because you need strength to endure your cup too. The cup isn't going to be taken from you. And so you need strength to endure your cup, but it says they're exhausted from grief. No doubt the grief of knowing That Jesus has just said, my body's going to be broken for you. My blood's going to be shed for you. So so the grief of knowing their Savior, their Lord, that he's telling them he's about to die. And so they're overwhelmed with grief at the thought of Jesus' death. But then surely they're also thinking, by our connection and association with Jesus, maybe we're going to endure the cup that Jesus has coming. And so there's got to be some fear. There's some anxiety here. And it says they're overwhelmed with grief. And so they go to sleep. But Jesus challenged his disciples to wake up and to pray. It reveals that it's through fervent prayer that we are sustained and strengthened for the cup that we face. And because God's response to Jesus' prayer is to provide strength for the cup, not to take the cup away, not to remove the cup, Jesus knows their cup awaits, and so you got to wake up and pray. You need strength to endure the cup. Let's keep going, verse forty-seven. But even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the twelve disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, "Judas, why would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss?" When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, "Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords." And then one of them struck at the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus spoke to the leading priest, the captain of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. And he said, am I some dangerous revolutionary, he asked, that that you would come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why, Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment. The time when the power of darkness reigns. The Pharisees would have represented the religious right of Jesus's day. The Sadducees, the religious left of Jesus's day. And what's interesting is that they both hate Jesus. Both the religious right and the religious left hate Jesus because they love their power and position more. And so they conspire together to arrest and kill Jesus. And they use Judas in the process, in the Gospel of John. It says that Judas arrives with Roman soldiers and temple guards. They have swords and torches. Like they're going to arrest this, as Jesus would put it, this dangerous revolutionary. And when Judas approaches Jesus with a kiss, Jesus says, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus, once again, if you've been with us through our study of the Gospel of Luke, using this title for himself, Son of Man, he's used it over and over and over again. This is the divine messianic name for the Messiah from Daniel chapter 7 when it said that the, there, there was one like a Son of Man that would come down from the clouds and when he came down would defeat evil, would defeat the Antichrist and would receive this kingdom, this, this power, this authority. And Jesus is once again using this divine messianic name for himself, leaving no doubt who Jesus is claiming to be. Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh, the son of God, with all the power and authority of God. But Jesus can also see what's about to happen. With Judas's kiss, he says, Are you gonna, you, you, you're, you're betraying me with the kiss? Jesus knows What's happening here. In fact, in John chapter 18, it says this, that Jesus fully realized all that was about to happen to him. In John 18, again, when the soldiers arrive to arrest him and they ask him if he's Jesus, Jesus responds with, I am he. This is a divine pronouncement. He's using the words that would have been used for only God in the Old Testament, like Yahweh. And so when they ask, are you the one? Are you Jesus? And Jesus in John 18 says, I am he. It says that they all fell down on the ground and they get back up again. And they're like, are you him? And he's like, I am he. And it says they all fell down on the ground all over again. You see, here's here's what's amazing in Greek. The language of the guards falling down before Jesus, it's the same exact language that was used when a military force would fall in defeat before a greater military force. So clearly, Jesus is not being arrested here because he has no power or because he is weak or because he is helpless. Jesus is arrested here because he allows it as the scripture would say, no one's going to take his life from him. He's going to lay it down. As Psalm 53 would say, he would be led away like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before its shears, so will the lamb of God be. He will be silent, he will be defenseless, he will lay his life down. Well, the disciples are having none of this. Should we fight? And the other gospels tells us that it's Peter that takes out his sword and slashes off the ear of the high priest's servants. And this attack would no doubt have confirmed this armed guard's suspicions that Jesus' followers are violent revolutionaries. And so what does Jesus do? In Luke 22, he says, no more of this. In John chapter 18, he says, put your sword away. I will drink the cup of suffering that the father has given me. And then he picks up the ear and he puts it on the man's head and he heals him. He heals his enemy who's come to arrest him. And see, this is why studying the scripture verse by verses is, is so necessary because maybe if Those that had come before us had been more devoted to studying the scripture verse by verse, getting the full counsel of the word of God. Maybe the foolishness of the crusades could have been avoided. Or maybe even the idolatry today in our own country of Christian nationalism that wants to replace disciple making with position and power. You see what this passage is screaming is that Christians don't need position. We don't need power. We don't need control in a government. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. It's not the way the kingdom of God advances. We aren't revolutionaries. We're not a violent people. We're not a forceful people. That's not the way of the kingdom. And so Jesus says no more of this. Put your sword away. Let's keep going. Verse 54. So they arrested him and led him to the high priest's home. And Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. And finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers, but Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. And after a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No, man, I'm not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he's clearly a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard. Weeping bitterly. Peter not long before this, has made some pretty big promises, right? I'll never leave you. Even if everyone else leaves you, Jesus, I will never leave you. I'll, I'll die with you if I need to. Peter made some pretty big promises, right? He, he, he had a lot of bravado about what he was going to do. He had some great intentions, even, about his faith and what he was going to do for Jesus. But, but, but how do you know what's really true? How do you know like where you really are in your relationship with the Lord? Well, the same way Peter found out where he really was. Trial, suffering, discomfort, sacrifice. Those things have a way of revealing what's really going on in your heart. Those things have a way of bringing to the surface the truth, the, the, the reality of like who you really are and, and, and where you really stand. And so it's in this moment of trial, of pressure, sacrifice, temptation, comfort, where Peter sees what's really inside of him, not the, not the fantasy that he's so brazenly bragged about, not the mask that he's been wearing, Peter sees who he really is in this moment. And it's the pressure, it's the sacrifice, it's the comfort that results in him distancing himself just a little bit from Jesus. Peter's been walking with Jesus, right? And now what do we see? Sacrifices on the line, his comfort's on the line, right? There's the pressure, right? And what does he start doing? He starts putting a little bit of distance between him and Jesus. And then what? Now, Now he's kind of chumming up with a whole different crowd. He's been with Jesus. He's been with the disciples, right? And now there's some distance between him and Jesus. Now he's kind of sitting down with a different crowd than he's been sitting with for the last three years. And so just that That one little step away, that little distance that gets between him and Jesus, and what happens? That sin takes him further than he could have ever possibly imagined. That's the exact way temptation and sin is. It always takes you further, way further than you ever thought you would go. And so that distance leads to what? You're one of his followers. No, I'm not. No, 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 no. I saw you. With the disciples, like you're, you're one of them. I don't even know them. And the other gospels would say Peter would curse the idea that he knew Jesus or that he was one of Jesus' followers. You see the escalation here? Little bit of distance, different crowd he starts running with. I don't even know him. And then I don't even know them. And then cursing the idea that he would know him or that he would know them. It's always the way sin works. Takes you further than you ever thought you could possibly go. Well, Peter's Galilean accent would totally give him away. I mean, it made him immediately recognizable to those in Jerusalem. That's why you're, they're like, you're a Galilean. And here's what they're saying. They hear him talk and they're like, you're one of those country hicks that's uneducated and that's been following Jesus. No, I mean, that's literally what it was. The Galileans were like the country hicks of the day. And so Peter talked probably with a, a twang, right? Or with a long draw. Darby and I were in Cancun for our 20th anniversary not long ago. And uh, we were sitting down to dinner and this couple across from us goes, hey, where are y'all from? And we're like, we're, you know, we're from Texas. And he was this long draw out. He's like, We're from Alabama. You know, like, hey, bud, you didn't have to tell us. Like, I needed one guess to know where you're from. That's exactly what I was going to guess. Alabama, right? I mean, that's the way Peter would have talked to these elite Jews of the day. He talked with this accent that totally gave him away. But because there's comfort on the line, Because there's sacrifice that's about to be paid. Peter's like, I'm, that's, you got me wrong, man. That's not me. I don't know them. And I don't know him. And then Jesus is brought across the courtyard. And Jesus looks at Peter and Peter looks at Jesus and their eyes catch. Can you imagine this? Scripture says that his eyes are like fire. And one day you're going to see those eyes. One day you will see those eyes, just like Peter did. And Scripture says in Revelation that his eyes are like fire. They not only see everything you've ever done, but they see every thought you've ever had. and every motivation in your heart. And Peter saw those eyes, they're like fire. That saw right past the mask, saw through the sin, and gazed into the depths of his soul. And we know that in this moment, because of the way Peter responds to this look, that there was so, there was so much in that look. There, there was so much in that gaze. It was as if Jesus was gazing into the soul of Peter saying, you, you may not know me, but I know you. And, and, and you may not be acting like you love me right now, but I love you. And, and you may be denying me right now, but I'll never deny you. And it's in this moment that Peter sees himself as he really is. He sees reality, not the fantasy, not the mask he had been bragging about. And he finds himself right where he had begun when Jesus called him to follow him. When Peter was overwhelmed by the power and the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus, and he fell before him and he said, away from me, I'm a sinful man. And I don't deserve to be in your presence. It's in this moment that Peter, he sees reality. And he weeps bitterly over his sin. Have you ever been there before? Where you were in like the the presence of God and you experience, like you were seeing and like feeling or, or, or knowing, realizing like the, the holiness and the righteousness of God and and you're seeing yourself like for who you really are and it breaks your heart. Have you ever been there before? How long has it been since you've been in that place? Like when was the last time like, the holiness and the righteousness of God like hits you and you, you, you realize like who you really are before a holy and righteous God and it broke you. Like like when, when was the last time that that happened? Maybe it's been a while because in your self-righteous pride, you've started thinking like Peter that you're better than you really are. You see, it's in this moment when, when Jesus looks at Peter that Peter realizes, I am far more evil and wicked than I could have ever imagined. But then at the exact same time, in that look from Jesus, Peter sees that he is far more loved than he could ever imagine. And it breaks him. all the self-righteous pride is gone. And Peter gets a dose of reality. I'm far more wicked and evil than I could have ever possibly imagined. But at the exact same time, I'm far more loved than I could ever possibly imagine. Let's keep going, verse 63. The guards in charge of Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him. And they said, prophesy to us, who hit you that time? And they hurled all sorts of terrible insults at him. And at daybreak, all the elders of the people assembled, including the leading priests and teachers of religious law. And Jesus was led before this high council. And they said, tell us, are you the Messiah? But he replied, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you a question, you you won't answer. If you've been here, you know, we've already been through this before. They ask Jesus about who he is, and he answers, but they don't believe him. And then he, he tries to ask them questions, but they don't respond. Verse 69, Jesus says this, but from now on, the son of man will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. And they all shouted, so you are claiming to be the son of God. You, you are claiming to be God in flesh. And he replied, you say that I am. Why do we need other witnesses? They said, we ourselves heard him say it. Jesus says he's the son of man at God's right hand. So Jesus, once again, claiming this divine title, but then taking it so much further now and saying, you're gonna see the son of man at God's right hand. That's the place of power and authority. And so Jesus is not only claiming a divine title, but now he's declaiming a a, a divine position, a divine place, the place of power and authority and, and of judgment at God's right hand. This enthronement language that Jesus is using comes from Psalm 110. And it's similar to the imagery in Psalm 2 where God's anointed is enthroned and designated the son of God. And so to them, this is a clear admission that he is saying he is the Lord's anointed. He is the Messiah. He is the son of God. You see, Jesus wasn't opposed because he fed the poor or healed people. Those were great things. That isn't why he was opposed. That's not why he was hated. He was hated by the religious right and the religious left of his day because he claimed authority that only God could claim. He he claimed to be truth itself and he claimed a position that only God can claim. And so in their pride, they, they hated him and they had him arrested. Now, Matthew, the gospel of Matthew is going to tell us that it's at this moment that Judas realizes what he's done. Like, after this scene that we just read plays out, where he's beaten and he's mocked and he's insulted, and he doesn't defend himself, and he doesn't fight back, that it's at this moment that Judas says, I have condemned innocent blood. Now. Scholars have speculated that that maybe what Judas was trying to do was push Jesus, in his betrayal, was push Jesus to this moment so that Jesus would reveal himself as this political and military king that he had been hoping for. I mean, he's seen everything that Jesus has done. He's he's seen him heal people and walk on water and and even raise the dead. And he's been thinking that, that Jesus is not going to allow himself To be taken. And so scholars have speculated that maybe Judas is trying to push Jesus in his betrayal, push him to this moment where he will finally reveal himself for who he really is. He wanted him to show his might. And that maybe, just like Peter recalled the words of Jesus when he denied Christ, that it's at this moment that. Judas probably recalled Psalm 22 that prophesied a suffering servant, that he began to recall Isaiah 53 that prophesied a suffering servant that would be a lamb that would be led away to the slaughter and he was overcome with grief in this moment, realizing that he had got it all wrong. That Jesus is who he said he is. He's the suffering servant that's come to take away our sin. But we know that it's in this moment that Judas realizes and understands. I've, I've betrayed, I've condemned innocent blood. There, there's so much happening behind the scenes in this in this in this pa- in these passages. There's the there's this grand like meta-narrative. We've talked about this before. You got the, the narrative that you find yourself in, you got the story that we're in, but then there's this kind of grand story that's happening behind the scenes. It's called the, the meta-narrative. And so we, we, we see so much happening here behind the scenes. One, we see the the, the divinity of Jesus being on display and his claiming to be the Son of God. But but then we also see that the, the sovereignty of God. God in the plan of redemption, that that God is the one in charge here, that God is the one in control here, that that, that yes, the, the Romans and the Jews have conspired together, but we're also seeing like was prophesied in Isaiah 53, that it's the Lord's will to crush his son, under his wrath, that we might be rescued from his wrath. And so God has been bringing all of this together. And so we're, we're seeing in these passages that the sovereignty of God in the plan of redemption, but then finally, in the, the, just again, in the, in the background here, in the meta-narrative, what, what's going on beyond the scenes, we're, we're seeing the sovereignty of God in suffering. That it's the Father, Jesus says, that have given them this cup to drink. And so we see that the sovereignty of God in suffering, that God allows evil and suffering, both for your good and his glory. It's the sovereignty of God in suffering. Joel Green, in his commentary on Luke, said this, in calling for Jesus's execution, the Jewish leaders think they are acting on God's behalf by doing away with the one who, in their view, opposes God's purpose. But in opposing Jesus, they are actually opposing the very divine purpose they had thought to serve. Yet, their instrumentality in Jesus's crucifixion, Thus, ironically, conceived in opposition to the divine plan actually serves that plan. This is the glory of God. This is God taking what's meant for evil and turning it for good and for his glory. This is the story of Joseph all over again. And it's the story and glory of the cross that God takes what man means for evil and he turns it for good your good and His glory. This is the sovereignty of God in suffering. And so, now what do these passages mean for us? Well, first of all, there's a challenge here for disciples of Jesus, and it's this it's that disciples of Jesus persevere through prayer. We, we, we persevere and receive strength to persevere for the cup of trial, of of suffering, of temptation. We receive strength to persevere through prayer. Jesus challenges his disciples, hey, you guys are about to face a cup too. You gotta wake up and pray because the Father is willing to give you his spirit to enable you to persevere. The flesh is so weak but it's in the place of prayer that we are strengthened for the cup. You see, the way to remain persistently obedient to God's will in the time of trial, in the time of suffering, is through persistent, earnest, and even submissive prayer. And so Jesus' challenge reveals that disciples can remain faithful and persevere in times of testing. But then, at the exact same time, what do we see in the apostles? What do we see in the disciples? What do we see in the twelve? This this inability to do consistently and perfectly what Jesus challenges them to do. Right? Wake up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation, so that the Father can strengthen you for the cup. Snoring, right? Get up, wake up, pray. We got to pray. What do we do? Snoring, right? I mean, they they consistently have shown they are unable to do what Jesus tells them to do consistently and perfectly. And so here is the big idea from everything that we've talked about today. And it's that even though we are unfaithful, Jesus is faithful. And by faith, Jesus's faithfulness covers our unfaithfulness. The first Adam sinned against God and the scripture says it condemned all of us before God. We're born into sin with an attitude that's bent towards sin. But the scripture says in Romans 5 that, that Jesus is a second Adam. And his righteousness, because the scripture says he perfectly fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law, that, that his righteousness, his faithfulness can rescue us from our faithful unfaithfulness and disobedience. So the first Adam brings condemnation for sin to all of us, but the, the second Adam's righteousness can bring righteousness to those who would believe in Jesus by faith. And so our hope is not in our obedience. It's not in our faithfulness. It's in his, and this is the gospel. Abandoning all of your hope in your own works abandoning all of your, your hope and your own obedience, abandoning all hope and doing better and trying harder, abandoning all hope and establishing your own right standing before God and casting all of your trust, faith, and hope in what Jesus has done for you in fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law that you could never meet and through his death on the cross paying your fine for sin. And that's the gospel. It's repenting of the delusion that you can do better and try harder your way into the love of God, into the presence of God or into God's heaven. You can't. You could never do better and try harder enough to please God or to be right with him. And so the gospel says, I'm repenting of the delusion." that I could ever be right with God by my own standing or by my own works. And it's completely casting all of your trust and hope into Jesus whose faithfulness covers your unfaithfulness. I mean, what we see from the crowds, from Peter, from the disciples are, Some moments of great faithfulness, but then a lot of moments of like colossal unfaithfulness. And does that describe anybody else in the room but me? Moments of some faithfulness, but then some like huge moments of just consistent unfaithfulness. I mean, these guys are not heroes. Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. They're not heroes, they were wicked men who served a great and merciful and forgiving God. The disciples are are not heroes. They were wicked, unfaithful people that served and believed in a great and merciful savior. And so when we read the scripture sometimes, we We see the stories of Noah and Abraham and Moses and people like David and we're like, and and sure there's some things to to learn from their lives, but Jesus would say all of their lives and stories pointed to him. That it was all about him. It was all pointing to him. And so, no, you you aren't Noah, you aren't Abraham, you aren't Moses, you, you aren't David. The scripture says, Jesus is the greater Noah. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Abraham. Jesus is the greater David. They were all pointing to Jesus, wicked, unfaithful people whose lives trusted in a great and merciful and faithful savior. And so no, the good news of the gospel, despite what you may have learned growing up, isn't do better and try harder. It isn't stop doing this and start doing this, these things. That's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is the reality, it's the truth that I am far worse and more evil than I could ever possibly imagine. And yet at the exact same time, I'm far more loved than I could ever possibly Imagine in Romans 5, in case you're wondering, says that he proved it that God proved his love for you by sending his son Jesus while we were yet sinners. He sent his son Jesus to be arrested, to be mocked, to be insulted, and to suffer and die on a cross to prove that you are more loved than you could ever possibly imagine. And so the great news of the gospel is that if you've given your life to Jesus, you are in Christ, the scripture says, and Christ is in you. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see your unfaithfulness. He sees the faithfulness of Jesus and he looks on him and he pardons you. And that's the great news of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Just right where you're at, just heads bowed, eyes closed. Just kind of a moment between you and God. I'm just praying that right now by the power of the Holy Spirit, you just kind of catch eyes with Jesus right now in this moment. And you see those eyes that are like fire, seeing everything you've ever done, every thought you've ever had, every motivation you've ever had in your heart. And you would drop the fantasy, drop the mask. You're you're far worse than you could ever imagine. But the great news of the gospel is that you're far more loved than you could ever possibly imagine. Maybe today, for the very first time, some of you would say, man, I've gotta stop trying to do better and, and, and try harder. Like my good deeds outweighing my bad deeds, like that's not God's way. God's way of salvation is providing a savior, a rescuer from you because you can't do it. But the great news is that Christ did. And he proved his great love for you by laying his life down like a lamb to the slaughter. And so today I wanna to challenge you, if that's you, give your life to Christ today for the first time and pull out that connection card in the seat back in front of you, fill it out and check that box. that says, I'm committing my life to Christ. After the service is over, take that connection card to our welcome center. We've got a team there that would love to pray with you and kind of point you in the right direction from here. We're about to sing a song written by Shane and Shane. And uh, there's words to this song that say this, my hearts, my flesh, they may fail. But you, Jesus, are my portion. You are my inheritance. I I am in you and and you're in me. You're you're my portion. So I've got all that I need in Christ. And his faithfulness covers my unfaithfulness. My heart, my, my flesh may fail. But Jesus, you are my portion and you never fail. And so God, I pray that as we sing these songs, God, I pray that your spirit would stir in our hearts and awaken our hearts with a fresh fire and a a fresh passion for the gospel and a fresh love for Jesus, our portion, our inheritance. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?